0: Romans chapter 1 in verse 20. This relates, believe it or not. <laughs> Romans chapter 1 in verse 20 says that the invisible things that you can't understand about God can be understood by the things that He's made. And it even says, even His eternal power and Godhead. You know, our, our little four-year-old you know, son, he, he comes up and says, you know, Dad, they were, they were talking in Sunday school about... The trinity and you know i don't think i understand the trinity and so you know we, we try to get with a four-year-old you know and get real theological well uh, son i feel a delicacy in articulating unless i should deviate from the nebular conception of the truth but god in the vast expanses of the universe and you know he's like I, you know i think i need a nap dad <laughs> the only time in life you can get the kid to take a nap when, when god says that he pictured himself throughout his creation Okay, and you can take your little four-year-old son and you can walk outside and and you can say, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay here for the next 24 hours and I want you to watch up in the sky at what happens. And you know what? Even a four-year-old kid is going to say, you know what? Real early in the morning, this big ball of fire came up in the sky. And you know what? That was created by God. And God said, you can look at that and you can begin to see things about that, about the Godhead and you know what a great picture of god a great picture of the trinity is the sun you see that the sun is this incredible ball of gas you know i'm am standing on the earth you know it's a solid thing the, the, the sun isn't like that it, it's it, it's this this massive ball of, of, of gases okay and you can't actually see those gla- gases and the truth is if you could go there and you could stand it, you couldn't even feel those actual gases, but the fact is you couldn't go there and live. And you see, that is exactly God the Father because God is a spirit. Remember Jesus talking about that in John chapter 4? And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you, you, can't, you can't see God. The Bible says no man hath seen God at any time, and it says that no man could see God and what? and live you know what it's just like the sun but you see the sun is not just those gases the sun is also it has light rays you can see them and you see they're a picture of of jesus christ jesus came and he said i mean you'd have to be an idiot really to miss what he was saying he said i am the light of the world that lighteth every man you see we look at the sun and we're not actually seeing those gases you know what we're seeing we're seeing the light rays and they are the manifestation of those gases remember in john chapter 14 jesus was talking with philip philip says show us the father and he says don't you understand philip that if you've seen me you've seen the father you see he is the visible manifestation of the father But, and in Malachi chapter 4, I mean, if we really were trying to miss it, Malachi chapter 4 makes it to where it's impossible to miss it because it talks about Jesus Christ coming back to this planet at his second coming, and it calls him specifically the sun, capital S-U-N, the sun of righteousness. But the sun also has a different kind of rays. It has heat rays. And with the heat rays, you can't see them, but you can feel them. You see, it's a perfect picture of the Holy Spirit and His working in our lives. We can't see Him, but buddy, we can feel Him, right? Boy, the conviction of the Spirit of God. Some of you have gone through great adversity and and trial. You know, you have found the comforting, you feel that, the comforting ministry of the Spirit of God. In fact, in some places, He is called the Spirit of Peace. But, your little kid out there, I mean, you see, you can teach your kid a whole lot about the Godhead, the three-in-one, just through what God made. But if he's out there and that sun goes down, he's going to say, and you know what else, Dad? Then it got dark, and then there was this other big bright light that was shining up in the sky. And that's called the what? You guys are sharp, man. Okay? It, it, it's the moon. And, and we've sing songs, you know, shine on, shine on, harvest moon. But you know what the truth is? The moon doesn't shine. In fact, now it, it took scientists thousands of years to come to that but you know the first book of the bible uh, the oldest book is the book of job and in job 25 5 do you realize that it said it way back there the moon shineth not the moon folks it's just a, a dead rock it has no light of its own of its own what it does is it reflects the light of the sun and you know what it is Man, it's a perfect picture of the believer in jesus christ because we were dead in trespasses, in sins. We were a dead rock. But now, as Philippians chapter 2, and verse 15 says, we now shine as lights in the world. The light isn't ours. What is happening is we're simply reflecting the light of the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and it works like this. The earth is in orbit around the sun. The moon is in orbit around around the earth, and then every once in a while the earth passes between the sun and the moon. And you know what we call that? Eclipse, and specifically a lunar eclipse. And scientists say, we've got this unbelievable phenomenon that is going to be taking place. You know what? It's no unbelievable scientific phenomenon that's taking place. You know what it is? It's a picture of the believer in Jesus Christ when he allows the world to come between He and His relationship with Jesus Christ. You know what happens when an eclipse comes and the Earth gets between the Moon and the Sun? The light on the Moon goes out. You know what happens when the world steps in in its relationship between you and the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't shine as lights anymore. Our light goes out. And the reason that I'm going through all of that this morning is what we're going to see in the book of Revelation chapter 2 is a, a perfect picture of a church and a period of church history where the world came in between the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and that church. And what happened is the lights went out and what it did is it thrust this world into utter darkness and specifically a time in history that is called the dark ages. Some of you, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at this thing a little bit differently than we've been looking at the last two letters in the, the churches uh, over the last several weeks, but I do want, want some of you to, as we're going through all of these doctrinal things this morning, oh my goodness, please do not miss the fact that what I've just described, some of you are living in an eclipse right now because the world has stepped in between the sun and yourself. And the Lord is wanting to deal with you about that in the midst of all of these doctrinal things that we're going to see this morning. Now, if you're a guest with us, or maybe new to what's going on here, we're going through the Book of Revelation. We are in chapters two and three, where there are seven letters that the Lord Jesus Christ dictates to the Apostle John to seven churches that were in Asia Minor. You've got to understand the fact, though, that there, in like with every portion of the Word of God, there are three layers of application. There is, first of all, a historical application to these letters. That is, these were real churches in 90 AD or so in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and these were addressing real situations that were really going on in these churches. So there is that aspect. There is that historical application. But there is also a doctrinal or a prophetic application to these letters. These letters also represent seven periods of church history that pick up where the book of Acts leaves off and takes you all the way up to the rapture of the church, which is found after the seventh letter in chapter 4 and verse 1, as John talks about, after this, I looked up, heaven opens, and he is caught up, there's a trumpet, the voice, it's everything that is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So there is that aspect, and the last several weeks we we haven't been majoring on this, Today we are going to talk quite a bit about the doctrinal and prophetic application of this next letter. But then there's a third layer of application, and it's the inspirational, the devotional application. And what this is, is the fact that these seven letters are representative of churches that have been all down through the centuries. Churches have these characteristics. They're facing these same obstacles. They have some of these great uh, attributes that are found in these in, in these churches. They've got some of the same problems that they're dealing with that churches are facing today. And it's the same thing in believers' lives. I mean, these these letters, man, some of them are just telling the story of some of our lives. So there's that aspect of this thing. But this morning we're going to be looking at the letter that our Lord writes to the church in Pergamos. And we're following a, a consistent outline that the Lord follows and you Rather than take the time to go through all of that, let's just, let's just hop right on into it. You'll notice in verse 12 that our Lord begins to dictate the letter to the church in Pergamos. This is the commission in, on your outline. Verse 12 begins, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Right. Now, if we're going to understand this letter, there's a, there are a few things that we're going to need to understand about Pergamos. Now, guys, I'll already tell you, man, we are gonna, we're going to jet. There's going to be a lot of things you're going to want to write down. I would I would encourage you write as fast as you can get it all down what for those of you that were here through church history we're going to take about what was about 20 weeks and concise it into one message believe it or not and we, you know what if you'll work with me we'll, we'll make it and you'll you'll grab a hold of it you'll see it like you've never seen it before because it's coming in, in in one package okay so there's some things that we need to understand about pergamos first of all i want you to note that pergamos was the capital city of the Roman government in Asia. Now, that may seem like it's just some moot point. You know, okay, well, that's a nice little fact. I probably need to get that down about Pergamus. It's the capital city of the Roman government in Asia. But listen, this is not a moot point. This is so, so key. Now, make sure that you get this. In Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Satan sets up his headquarters on the earth in a place called Babel or Babylon. You know, we read about the story of the Tower of Babel. To most Christians, it's nothing more than just a a nice little Sunday school lesson that we teach boys and girls, and it's really a cool one because there's great flannel graphs you can do for the Tower and that whole deal. You know, it's really dramatic and all of that. But listen, there's a whole lot more going on back there at that Tower of Babel than most folks ever imagined. The city and Tower of Babel was the beginning of Satan's organized false system of religion. And if you ever take the time to, to do an exhaustive study uh, of, of what was actually going on back there, and we did that in our study of, of church history here several years ago, but if you ever take an exhaustive study of this thing, what you'll find is that all the components were there back at the Tower of Babel to be an unbelievable counterfeit to the working of God in the centuries that were to come. And Did you catch what I just said? I'm telling you, you're going to have to. You're going to have to work with me this morning. Please don't leave me up here to work by myself. Hey, get with me here and, and and track with this thing. All the components that you're going to see back there at the Tower of Babel, all of those things, were just a counterfeit of what God was going to be doing in the centuries that were to come. Check it out. In that Tower of Babel religion, there is a holy mother who brings forth a child. And that child is a son. A son who is supernaturally conceived. And what he is, is he is the incarnation of his father. And you know what his father was manifested as? Blazing light. His birthday is December 25th, and it is celebrated with feasting, parades, holly, mistletoe, yule logs, evergreen trees that are brought into the house and decked or decorated. The mother is central to the religion, and she is prayed to as the queen of heaven, the mother of God, the mediatrix, and the Madonna. The mother and child together represent gods of love and life, or in other words, fertility. The son dies And he's buried. And after 40 days of weeping by his mother, he is miraculously resurrected from the dead. And the event is celebrated in the spring of every year on a day that is called Ishtar, pronounced Easter. And that celebration includes bunnies, colored eggs, bonnets, and Easter Ishtar sunrise services held in honor to the risen Savior God of the Babylonian religion the worship also included ritualistic repetitive prayers that were prayed using rosary beads it included the worship of statues and to top it all off the symbol of this satanic counterfeit religion out of Babylon was the sign of the cross called the Tal, t-a-u in the shape of the letter T and listen all of this was going on back in the Babylonian Tower of Babel religion. And in our study of church history, because I know there's probably, if I had not studied this on my own and I came into a room and hear, heard all those things, I would be going, say, what? you got to be jiving me, man. You can go back and check it out. What we did in our study of church history is we, we took week after week after week to document it, the, the reality of these things that we're, we're talking about here. And in Genesis chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, what it says is that God came down and He did two things there at the Tower of Babel. First, He scattered the people from the city and the Tower of Babylon all over the world. Secondly, He confounded their language. And as a result, Satan's organized false system of religion scattered all over the world. And folks, that's why, no matter where you go on this planet, and you begin to trace ancient religions, they are every one of them. I mean, you can go back and check out the cave walls, the whole gig. And What you're going to find is that every single one of them have a holy mother with a halo over her head and a child. Now, in the various cultures that you might study this, the names will not be the same because remember what God did? What did he do? He confounded their language. So it's the same basic religion called by different names wherever it happened to go and according to the language that God uh, had confounded. But it was all, listen, it was all that same system that Satan developed at Babel. And you see, as long as Babylon was the dominant world power, it served as a great headquarters or a a base of operations for Satan to use for his religious counterfeit. But when Babylon's glory began to, to fade, Satan began to look for another headquarters. He began to look for another base of operations through which to use this Babylonian system of religion, and the place that he chose was none other than Pergamos. You say, okay, where are you coming up with that? Okay, It's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ tells you in verse 13. This is not my opinion. He says, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, Okay, where do they dwell? Pergamos, right? Even where Satan's seat is. And look at the last part of verse 13, where Satan dwelleth. And for some of you new believers, listen, a lot of this is pretty deep that we're covering this morning, but I'll just tell you, if you miss everything else that we go into this morning, please do not miss the fact that Satan does not live in hell this morning. You will make sure that you get that. That is not where he dwells. Now Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels and ultimately that's where he's going to end up but he's not there yet. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that he is right now. He is the God of this world. Folks, that's the same world that you and I live in this morning. He is the God of this world. And Job chapter 1 and verse 7 says that he goes on in this world, he goes to and fro in it, walking up and down in it. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 says that he is also the prince of the power of the air. That, that's the same air that you and I are breathing this morning. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it says that that air is filled with all kinds of satanic forces, principalities, powers, uh, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness. It's all there. But he says in verse 13 that Pergamos is the place where Satan dwelt. And like I said a couple of minutes ago, at the time that that John wrote the, the book of Revelation, Pergamus was the capital city of the Roman government in Asia. And, and listen, listen very carefully. The Roman form of government was taken right from the city and tower of Babel. Are you catching that? The Roman form of government was not just a political system. It was also a religious system. In fact, Pergamos even had a temple where the citizens were required once a year, they were required by law, to burn a pinch of incense at the feet of the Roman emperor, honoring him and worshiping him as a god. And if you refused to do that, you were immediately arrested. But Pergamos didn't just have emperor worship. Now, that was big. Again, required by law that you do that. But man... Oh my goodness, Pergamos was a city that was full of idolatry. I I mean, they worshipped all kinds of pagan gods. So as you can see, it it served as a great base for Satan to work through to the the whole Roman Empire, which at that point had become the dominant world power. But now understand, that's just the historical application of Pergamos. And that's very important that you get that history down. But don't miss the fact that this letter to this, this church in Pergamos is representative of the Pergamos church period. That That's from approximately 325 A.D. to around 500 A.D. in the beginning of the Dark Ages. And understand this, during that period of time, now I'm talking about from 325 to 500, listen, Satan is going to take his throne or his seat, as it's called in verse 13, He is going to take his seat over the Babylonian religion and he is going to move it to Rome. It's in Babylon. In about 529 B.C. he moves it to Pergamos and during 325 to 500 he moves that thing to Rome and that will be the place where he will dwell. Rome will become the base of his operations or his headquarters and from listen, and from out of his seat or out of his chair in Rome, he will do his bidding. He will speak ex cathedra, as it were. Do you know what ex cathedra means, folks? Out of the chair. He gets a seat. He gets a seat out of the chair. And in a doctrinal or prophetic sense, this letter is detailing for us that time in history when Satan establishes a seat of authority in Rome in a counterfeit church. And that's exactly what Satan sets up under Constantine around 325 A.D. Constantine. And this is the way it came down. In the first 300 years in Christianity, through the the Ephesus and Smyrna church periods, Satan has come against the church, as we talked about a little bit earlier, just like 1 Peter 5, 8 talks about. He came as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, even physically. During this time, listen, Christians were being gathered together up by the Roman government and being commanded to worship the pagan gods of Rome and make sacrifices to those gods. And if they didn't, they would either cut their heads off immediately or they would bring them unarmed into the Roman arena and throw them to the lion's, some of them were whipped. Others were laid on beds of nails. Some of them had their eyes gouged out. Some had their fingers cut off one at a time all through the periods of the night. Some of them were burned at the stake. Some of them had things done that I'm telling you folks, if you go back and read it, I cannot even go into it in a mixed audience. Just let your imagination run wild. I mean, that's, in fact, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says that by the beginning of the fourth century, in 303 A.D. specifically, listen to this. Invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime. The only crime that they had is they worshipped Jesus Christ and would not bow their, their knee to the pagan gods of Rome. Invention was exhausted to devise the tor- tortures. You know what that means? They couldn't think up anything more grueling and more cruel to do to them simply because they believed what you and I believe this morning. But something strange was happening. The more Satan persecuted the church in the first few centuries, the more it grew. One writer of history put it this way, that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And you see, Satan finally figured it out. And now, through one man in the Pergamos church period, what Satan is about to do, he is about to do to Christianity what all of the whippings and the beatings And the scourgings and the torturings and the burnings and the murderings could not do it. And that is, he is about to, through this one man, he is about to counter the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through his church. But now Satan is no longer going to do it as a roaring lion. Now he's going to do it in another manifestation that the Bible says that he has. As an angel of light. Now now understand that during this period of time when he does this, Though I'm talking about the fact that he's basically countered the working of God. Understand that he did not kill the working of God. He didn't cease to exist. There has always been a line of people to which, through which we trace our heritage. And I know that sounds like an egotistical statement. We can do it, though. Those people who stood true to the faith, but at this point in history, they become greatly overshadowed. in the way that Satan did it, the way that he pulled this thing off was through a marriage, and coincidentally enough, you know what the name Pergamus means? It means much marriage. It's the root form, uh, the, the root word from which we get our word polygamy and bigamy. Pergamus, same root. And you know what's really taking place in this period of church history? It's a time when under the direction of Satan, the church is literally married to the world. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. An eclipse took place on this planet. The world stepped in between the relationship of the church of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself. And by the time it's all over, we entered into the Dark Ages, around 500 A.D. And I want you to turn back to... 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a minute. Let me remind you of something. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 2, Paul says to the believers in Corinth, and of course every believer in every age, he says, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. And who is that one husband? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Our relationship to Christ, is that of a marriage he is the husband we comprise his bride go on in verse 2 he says that i may present you as a chaste virgin to christ we have been a spouse to one husband and paul says the goal that i really have is when i present you to your husband that at that time that you are a pure virgin you see we're kind of like mary and joseph at the time that she conceived of the holy ghost Mary and Joseph were already espoused as husband and wife Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says but the marriage hadn't been consummated yet she was still a virgin and you see that's how we are we right now in 1997 we are espoused to Christ but the marriage has not yet been consummated that's going to take place as it says in Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 10 when Christ The bridegroom says to his espoused virgin, the church, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And you know what that is? Song of Solomon 2.10. It's the rapture of the church. And at that time, Paul says in verse 2, I want to make sure that you are a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, I want to make sure that you're not involved in any illicit relationship with anyone else. And what the whole rest of this chapter is about is how Satan himself wants to get you to commit spiritual fornication with him so that we are not the chaste virgin our Lord is coming to take away. And listen, folks, that's why the Bible tells you the things that it tells you about the world. It's because Satan is the god of this world. And listen, by connecting you to the world, he connects you to him. You see that? He's the God of this world, and when He connects you to this world system, He's connecting you to Him. And so you know what He's able to do? He is successful in defiling the chasteness of our virginity. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable when you really stop to, start to understand this thing. Because of your relationship to Christ, the fact that you are a spiritual virgin that has been espoused to Christ your, as your one husband, that's what He wants to do. He wants to defile you. To corrupt your virginity. And that's why the Bible tells you in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, don't love the world. It tells you in James chapter 4 and verse 4, don't be friends with it. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't fellowship with it. Colossians 3.2, don't set your affection upon it. Matthew 6.19, don't lay up treasures in it. Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to it. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Don't be yoked to it in any way, shape, or form. you understand why now? It is because Satan is the God of this world and Jesus has saved you out of the world and your connection is with Him now. You're a spouse to Him. And because you are, listen, Satan would love nothing more than to have an affair with you by linking you back up to his system. I'm doing a whole lot better preaching than y'all are doing amen this morning. I can tell you that. Amen? it's still weak but you know what some of us need to deal with that don't we because we're, we're we're flirting around with the world system yet claiming that we know the Lord Jesus Christ I want you to make sure you do not miss the atrocity that that is as a believer in Jesus Christ that somehow we would allow the world system to come between us and the Lord you see what he's saying here it's fornication with Christ, because we're espoused to him. Satan's the God of this world, so I have no connection with it. Folks, listen, Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says that the goal of the church is to reach the world. We can't reach it from anything other than a platform of holiness. But the Pergamous Church period, which began around 325 A.D., is that time in history when the exact opposite took place. Rather than the church. Converting the world, the world converted the church. And you see, through the first two church periods, Satan's been working. He's been working to get this counterfeit church in operation. And he's made a lot of great strides. And and there's been a lot of the structure that he's been able to put into place. But he hadn't actually been able to get the thing up and running. But, But here's how he did it. By the time you get to around 300 A.D. or a little after... We, we come through, in that period of time, we come through about 23 Roman emperors or so. And all of these guys, all of these Roman emperors, through all that period of time, they're all basically the same. They're all lost. They're all pagan. They're all anti-God. They're all anti-Bible. They're all anti-Christian. There's a few that are a little more tolerant than others, but for the most part... They are all bent on wiping out Christianity. And as we saw, they all believe that the way to do that is to just go through and annihilate anybody that names the name of Jesus Christ. But by 303, as we talked about, it was just unbelievable. All of the atrocities that were taking place against believers in Jesus Christ. But you see, something's beginning to happen in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is beginning to deteriorate from the inside out. It's beginning to be divided. It's beginning to lose some of its, its strength. And there, there, there are several people that during this period of time, around 303 or so, who are vying for the job of the next Roman emperor. The two most prominent men is a man by the name of Maxentius and another man by the name of Constantine. And these two guys and their armies finally come to battle about 10 miles north of Rome In 312 AD at a very famous battle that is called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And basically, whoever wins this battle is going to be the next emperor of Rome and the Pontifex Maximus over the Babylonian mystery religion. Constantine wins the Bible. And being the political and military genius that he was, and understand this, he was being controlled. He was a tool... In the hands of Satan and that's why he was like so many have been Adolf Hitler and Karl Marx and others tools in the hand of Satan Constantine was a slick one man what happens is Constantine being this this political and military genius that he is he credits the victory that he had at the Milvian bridge he credits the victory to the fact that he had seen miraculously a shining cross in the sky, and along with that shining cross, he heard a voice, and it was the voice of Christ that said, by this sign, the sign of the cross, thou shalt conquer. And so what Constantine does, he runs out, he puts crosses on his shields, on his banners, on his horses. You've seen the pictures of all that stuff in history. And he gives the credit to this miraculous victory to the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he was now a Christian. He's no more a Christian than the man in the stinking moon. He did not come to Jesus Christ repenting of his sin, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He he had some kind of vision in the sky, had nothing whatsoever to do with anything you can find in the Bible about how a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, he is a tool in the hand of Satan and was using what he called the religion of Christianity to unify the Roman Empire. And that's what's behind that whole deal that they tried to hand us in college in Western civilization and in high school with this great victory of Christianity under Constantine. That was not a victory. It was the greatest blow that Satan ever dealt against the church of Jesus Christ. And so here's Constantine, and he sets out to help the cause of Christianity. And he grants Christians religious liberty. And you see, all this time, man, they've had their their property confiscated. They've watched their their babies being killed, pulled out of the mother's stomach. I mean, the the unbelievable atrocities. They've watched all this, and now now they're getting liberties. And now what Constantine does, now that he's a, a Christian, what he does is now the pastors are being paid by the Roman government. They're being paid by the state. And Constantine is out promising 20 pieces of gold and a new baptismal road uh, for anyone who would quote unquote convert to Christianity, which by Constantine's definition is through baptism. Though strangely enough, he himself wasn't baptized until two weeks before he croaked. And now, Rome supposedly has a Christian emperor. Now, now follow this. Got a Christian emperor now, and since the Roman system was both a political and a religious system, a church state set up, if you will, just like it had been handed to them from the Tower of Babel system. Now, since Rome was Christian, Christianity has become the official religion of Rome. But understand something. Nothing, nothing in Rome was washed white. It was all whitewashed. What I mean by that is Christianity did not convert paganism. It just Christianized it. And in the process, true Christianity got paganized. Listen, Rome didn't stop worshiping the mother goddess from the Tower of Babel religion, Semiramis. It didn't stop worshiping her supernaturally born child, Tammuz, the Savior God who was the incarnation of his father they just, you know what happened they just gave them Christian names two weeks earlier they were bowing down to Semiramis and Tammuz, the holy mother and child, and but now Rome's Christian same exact statues now this is Jesus and Mary I mean just overnight because Rome is now, now Christian the Christianization of the, the pagan winter festival. The birthday of Tammuz or Baal, the sun god, on December 25th. You know what? Jesus had to be born sometime. We'll make this celebration his birth. Jesus was not born, folks, on December 25th. That was the birthday of Baal, the sun god. The, the spring festival called Ishtar held in honor to the supposed resurrection of Tammuz and all of a sudden this thing becomes Christian And right along with all the bonnies and and the bonnets and the colored eggs and the sunrise services, it's just now all the same exact stuff, all the same exact rituals, all the same exact things that they had always done, now this is being done in honor to Christ. Check this out. The pagan Roman emperor, he becomes the pope. The pagan Roman senate becomes the college of cardinals. The pagan Roman imperial governors... They become the archbishops. The pagan Roman provincial governors, they become the bishops. The pagan Roman civitas become the priests. The vestal virgins from the pagan Roman temples, they become the nuns. And Satan did it. He marries the church to the world to come up with his own counterfeit, which is called historically the Romans. Did you catch that? The Roman Catholic Church. You ever ask yourself, why is it Roman? It's because it's a church state set up right under Constantine. That's where the whole thing originated. The word Catholic means universal Christianity. And you see, because Rome is the dominant world power, now all of the world, we have a universal Christianity now. The pagan Religion of Rome becomes the papal religion of Rome. Satan takes his Babylonian system of religion that he developed under Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. He marries it to Christianity to come up with his own counterfeit, which is really nothing more than the old pagan Babylonian religion with a Christian name and a Christian face. It's just like Job chapter 41, verses 13 and 14 says that Satan changed his clothes. He put a different mask on, but it was still him just a different system. And from a doctrinal standpoint, man, that's what's taking place in verse 13. That's all wrapped up in the, the city of Pergamos, the name of Pergamos, and the letter to the church at Pergamos. And as our Lord begins the letter to the church at Pergamos in verse 12, just like He did when He addressed the letter to the church in Smyrna, just like He did in the letter to the church at Ephesus, He begins by identifying Himself with some aspect of His church Character That's Roman numeral 2 on your outline. And what we've seen in the first two letters, the letters to Ephesus and and Smyrna, is that our Lord specifically identifies Himself by using some aspect of His character that the church in that city and the church in that period of church church history desperately needed to be reminded of as they faced the opposition of Satan to counter and counterfeit the working of Christ through His true church. And as we just saw as I was bringing you through that overview of what was going on in this period of church history, what was going on is that the devil was working to set up... Now listen, all of that deal was was Satan working to set up an authoritative church to run things on this planet instead of an authoritative Bible. And to remind the church of... His place in the church. This is the Lord Jesus Christ now. To remind the church of His place and the place of His Word as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice in the church, He begins in verse 12 by saying, These things saith He which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And of course, every student of the, of the Bible knows that the sharp sword with two edges is the Word of God. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 says, Of the Lord Jesus Christ, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two edged sword. Jesus Christ, of course, is is God, and when he speaks, what comes out of his mouth are words. The word of God, the words of God, and they are authoritative. They are a sharp, two edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. Revelation 19 15 says, that when our Lord comes back to this earth at His second coming, that out of His mouth goes a sharp sword. And something interesting to note about this this two-edged sword is that one edge brings spiritual healing and help. The other edge brings judgment and destruction. Hebrews 4.12 says that this two-edged sword Pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and morrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what he's saying? It's like a, a spiritual scalpel in the hand of God that He uses to do spiritual surgery in our sin-cancered heart and soul and spirit. And that's why He writes in First Peter chapter one and verse twenty-three that we are born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So, it can bring spiritual help by bringing about spiritual life. Or, Revelation 19.15 says that with it He should smite the nations. And Revelation 19.21 says, "...and the remnant were slain with the sword of Him..." That sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. You see, it's the same Lord with the same sword; it's just a different edge. You got that? And you see those two those two edges right here in this passage in Revelation chapter two. Look at verse twelve. He writes to them, reminding them of his place in the church and the authority of his word. He writes to them these words. He which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And you see what it is. It serves as an appeal. It serves as a warning not to allow any person or any institution to usurp the authoritative voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. And in verse 12, the context is very positive. He presents Himself as there to help. That's one edge. But notice verse 16. He gives you the other edge. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, same Lord with the same sword, just a different edge. You know what determines which edge He uses? We do. Some of you are here this morning and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I stand before you this morning with the Word of God in my hand. In this book, is the final authority of every man, woman, boy, and girl, not only in this room, but on this entire planet this morning. Now, you may have in your life, you may have never acknowledged that. You may not live like it this morning. You may not even like it, but it's true. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when this book speaks, you know what it is? It is the voice of Jesus speaking and what this authoritative book says is that you are a sinner that you are separated from god because god is above all things supremely holy but he's not just holy and praise the lord for that the book of first john also says that he is love and that's why god sent his only begotten son into the world because he loves the world because he loves you and jesus christ died on the cross to pay for your sin so that you wouldn't have to pay for it by being eternally separated from God. And listen, if you will receive what this book says the Lord Jesus Christ did on your behalf by acknowledging your sinfulness and your separation from Him and acknowledging Jesus Christ as God in human flesh, the Lord of the universe and the Lord of your life and that His sacrifice is what you trust fully for your salvation, listen, At that very moment, the truth of what God laid down in His authoritative Word to man will cause you to be born again. And you know what? That can happen for you today. It can happen in this very service. But listen, if you don't heed the command of this sword that I hold in my hands this morning to repent, you do need to understand that this same sword is going to come back someday to smite you. The truth of the matter is you either you either humble yourself and receive it as the final authority for your life now and then stand upon it for the foundation of your life and watch it uphold you for time and eternity or you continue standing as your own final authority and ultimately you'll watch this book humble you and annihilate you for time and eternity. But you see, it's up to you. It's a sharp, Two-edged sword, but you determine which edge you want. And at the end of the service this morning, if it ever ends, at the end of the this service this, this morning, I'm going to provide you the opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and allow the power of the Word of God to do spiritual surgery inside of your life What He'll do is He'll cut away your sinful heart. And you know what He'll do? He'll give you a new one. Through the power of this book, bam! What an incredible God. You see, that's why our Lord introduces Himself the way He does in this letter to the church in Pergamos. as He which hath the sharp sword with two edges because He knows that one of the key things Satan is going to pull off in this period is that he's going to set up a counterfeit church that calls itself the universal Christianity that will set itself up as authoritative and will com- will claim that it is the sole interpreter of the Bible and that it is the means of salvation rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And folks, listen. In the Pergamus church period, it happened. That authoritative church was established. That authoritative church that claims to interpret the Bible and dispense salvation and I know that there's all kinds of talk about a Catholic renewal. I'm just telling you, folks, the church has never one time backed off from that position of being the sole interpreter of the Bible and the dispenser of salvation to mankind. In 1994, Pope John Paul II sent out in an introduction to the, the new Catholic catechism. He said that this catechism is offered to every individual who wants to know what the Catholic church believes. Okay, that's me. Article 100 of the Catechism says, "...the task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with Him." The Second Vatican Council's decree on ecumenism explains, "...for it is through Christ, Catholic Church alone which is the universal help toward salvation that the full means of salvation can be obtained. Do you see who the authoritative voice is? It's not the Lord Jesus Christ and it's not His book. They interpret the book and they dispense salvation to whom they say. The only problem is, He which hath the sharp sword with two edges never entrusted any of that to anyone but Himself. So we see the character of Christ expressed in his introduction to this church. And we see why. We see why he expresses this aspect of his character. Satan, in this church period, is going to try to set up a church that carries more authority on this earth than Christ or His Word. And so he says, These things saith He which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Look at verse 13. Next, Roman numeral 3 on your outline. Our Lord's commendation of this church In verse 13, he says, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now there's some very significant things here we're going to have to jet. First of all, he knew their works. Listen, even in the midst of all the garbage that Satan was pulling off in the Pergamos period, there were still some who had not been sucked in, but continued to stick by the stuff and and serve the Lord. Like I said, they were greatly overshadowed in that period of history, but there were Bible believers back there, God's faithful remnant, God's faithful few, who would not dip their colors, and they would not become a part of that counterfeit. But even way back then, they were standing against it. And the Lord says to those faithful people, He says, I know thy works. And He adds, and I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now now listen, think about this, guys. Historically, in 90 A.D., that's what the believers in the church in the city of Pergamos faced. They were called to stand for Christ in the midst of the very city where Satan lived and had set up his very headquarters. I mean, folks, I can just tell you that ain't New Philadelphia. Now, Satan is alive and well and he's got a lot of imps that work in this area and I can promise you that. But, this is not the headquarters of his operation. That's what was going on in the And Notice in verse 13, our Lord says that there were those who were holding fast his name and had not denied his faith, even in those days where Antipas was his faithful martyr who had been slain among them. Now, biblically, we don't get a whole lot of help on who this Antipas is. We do know this. His name means against all. Now, Tertullian, and I I don't put a lot of stock in Tertullian because a lot of times he wrote weird stuff. A lot of times he was was right, true things that were going on. I don't know for sure if this is a weird time or a good time. I believe it's a good time. But Tertullian writes, he's an historian at, the, at that period of time, and he writes that Antipas was the pastor of the church in Pergamos. And you remember earlier we were talking about how in Pergamos the citizens were required once a year by law to burn incense in, in worship of the Roman emperor? Remember we were talking about that? Well, Tertullian writes that when Antipas was brought before the emperor... He refused to worship him because of his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The emperor looks at Antipas and says, Don't you realize that all are against you? And he looked up at him and he says, Then I am against all. I like him. And with that, they cut off his head. And listen, don't you know, man... I mean, when you're sitting in the big fat headquarters of Satan, don't you know that it would have been tough to take a stand for Christ in that, in that very city? But don't ever forget, as we're going through this, that this is all just a period of what was going to be taking place in the Pergamos church period between 325 and 500 A.D. And what was happening in that period, folks, is in the midst of all the deception and corruption and persecution, in that period of time, God still had His faithful believers who weren't being deceived who are standing against the church state of Rome, even in the face of persecution and death. And listen, don't you dare miss the fact that we are sitting here in this room this morning with this Bible in our hands, and we are sitting here this morning with the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts because our brothers and sisters back there were willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. There were some people back there in 325 A.D. that said, no, we're not buying into all of this This unity that's supposedly going on in the name of Jesus. I don't care what Constantine's experience was. I don't care what he saw. I don't care what he heard. I'm holding to a more sure word of prophecy, the Word of God, which is greater than any experience. Constantine's salvation does not line up with what this book says, so we're not buying it. And we're not bowing any statues either. We're not counting any beads. And we're not bowing before any crosses. We're not celebrating your stupid pagan holidays that you call Christian. And some of our faithful brothers and sisters back there, guys, they were standing against all of that junk. And don't you know? Oh, I bet you they heard it. Oh, you guys think you're the only ones that are right, don't you? Why do you have to be so dogmatic? Why do you have to be so divisive? Man, I'll tell you what. You guys are not very loving. And yet the fact is, they loved this book. And they loved the Lord Jesus Christ more than they loved unity. Especially a religious unity that was being fostered by the devil himself and not the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved this book and they loved the Lord Jesus Christ more than they loved themselves. So you see, it didn't matter to them what everybody said about them because they weren't in love with themselves. And verse 13 lets you know that some of them loved this book and the God of this book more than they loved their own life and were martyred because they wouldn't be a part of the brand of Christianity in their day. You getting that? Our Lord commends them in verse 13. But then in verse 14, He brings His condemnation. Because you see, there was a faithful few, but most of them were sucked into this whole satanic counterfeit. And I'm telling you, my heart goes out to these people because it would have been tough living back in those times, watching... Your kids get their brains beat out watching all the persecution. And then here comes some guy that is saying, oh, listen, there's no sense you going through all of this. Listen, we want to give you religious freedoms. You see, unless you know this book, you get sucked into that junk. And it's just like what's going on today. There's all kind of Christian things going on. There's all kind of spiritual things that are going on. And I'm telling you, people, God's people, a lot of good people, getting sucked into all of that stuff that is a satanic counterfeit. You know why? You don't know this book. They, they, and some of you, I, I know you, you hate when we get on all, all this when my nostrils flare and I'm about to pass out when, as I'm preaching. I, I, I know that you hate this, but you know what? This is what's going to keep you from dipping your colors, man. In the last days, this is what it's going to take. We, we want somebody that's going to coddle us when we come to church. No, you need somebody that will preach to you. You, you know what? You, you take your dirty, stinking jeans and you get mud all over them. You can put them in the washing machine. They can sit in there all you want. They ain't coming clean. You know what it takes? You got this little thing in the middle of your washing machine. You know what it's called? And we got the water of the Word going and I get the joy of being the agitator. And and I'm not almost through yet. But look what he says in verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there then that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Do you see it? Satan's got his own counterfeit church now. And from that seat, from that place of authority, he's got some doctrines that he wants to get established in that church. First of all, notice in verse 14 what God calls the doctrine of Balaam You know what? We do have a little bit more to go. You guys guys want to just come back and do it tonight? Okay, good. Okay, if y'all want to leave, go ahead. Uh, No problem. We'll all bow our head and close our eyes. Okay. He calls the doctrine of Balaam. And whatever that doctrine is, verse 14 lets you know that it has to do with two key elements. Eating things sacrificed unto idols and committing fornication. Now, in the historical application in the city of Pergamus around 90 A.D., obviously. There were some believers there who were beginning to allow themselves to become a part of the, the worship of some of the pagan gods or idols there in that idolatrous, satanic city. And even beyond that, some of them had been involved in the in sexual perversion that was a part of worshiping the mother goddess in Pergamos who was the god of sexual love and fertility. And so fornication was obviously a part of that whole worship of her. But again, this is all picturing the things that would take place spiritually in the Pergamus church period under Constantine. And to really understand it from God's point of view, you need to understand what the deal was when Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Because God's letting us know that the same thing that took place back there with Balaam is the same thing that happened in the 4th century under Constantine. So let's jet back real quick to the book of Numbers, chapter 25. Is it hot in here? Is it just me? Now, the the story of of Balaam and and Balak really picks up in chapter 22. It continues on through chapter 23, 24, and 25. Obviously, we don't have time to read all four chapters, so let me just tell you what's been going on. Now, now get this in your mind, okay? I'm going to concise all of this down. Make sure you get it. What's been going on in chapters 22 to 24 is the children of Israel have come into the plains of Moab. And the king of Moab is Balak. Okay, He's a little freaked out by the fact that the children of Israel have come in because he is aware of how the children of Israel had come in and they've blown away the Amorites. So now they're in his land and he's a little freaked and he knows sure as the world, he's next along with the rest of Moab. So what he does is he tries to buy off one of the prophets. A guy by the name of Balaam. And Balak, the king of Moab, is trying to offer Balaam, the prophet, all kinds of stuff. He's offering him all kinds of stuff to curse the children of Israel so that they can't come against Moab. Okay, Balaam, Balaam wanted the stuff. <laughs> I mean, he was enticed by all of it. Oh, baby, I'd love to have this. But what it says in 2 Peter 2.15 is he loved the wages of unrighteousness. So, he attempts several times to curse the children of Israel, but every time that he opens his mouth to curse them... What happens miraculously is he blesses them. And he finally figures out God's not going to allow him to be able to bring a cursing upon them. But the dude was slick, man. He was slick. Satan's always and He's always got some slick guys that he works through. He thinks to himself, okay, the only way for these people to be cursed and die is if God does it. So you know what Balaam does? The book of Numbers doesn't record the actual conversation, but what Balaam does is he teaches Balak to cast a stumbling block in the path of the children of Israel that would bring upon them the wrath and cursing of God. Balaam taught Balak that if the women of Moab could seduce the men of Israel to commit sin with them, that he wouldn't have to worry about killing them because God would. So so Balak has a, a different study strategy than all the other Gentile nations. You know what he says? Hey, this is crazy. Let's don't fight them. Hey, there's no sense us beating each other's brains out over this. My goodness. And listen, you guys have had it pretty tough. You know, all these battles and all. And you've been out in that desolate wilderness so long. And you've been eating that nasty manna all this time. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to grant you children of Israel. Man, we're going to grant you some special privileges. And I'm not trying to be gross with you, but this is the way it came down. Here, here's, our, here's our women. Just, just live it up, boys, and get your fill there. And when you're all done there, there's plenty of food over here for you to eat. And, you know, forget that manna stuff. You say, well, well, did it work? Look at chapter 25. We'll pick up in verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people into the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods, and Israel joined himself unto Baal-peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people, and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal-peor. And look at verse 9. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four stinking Thousand figure. Now turn back to Revelation two. The Lord is telling us in verse fourteen. Listen, the same thing that happened in Numbers with Balaam and Balak happened in the Pergamos Church period. And you know what it is? The devil has tried time and time again to shut the mouths of believers in the first two century or the first several centuries. He, he's tried to wipe them out, but every time that he he comes against them, all it does is it causes them to grow. I mean, he wipes out two hundred of them. And the 2,000 that have just watched them die said, you know what? If there's something worth dying for, count me in! And they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mean, he finally figures out that the only way for these people to be cursed is if God does the cursing. And so Constantine comes along as a Roman emperor. And you see, he's not like the others. No, Constantine doesn't want to fight him. He wants to grant them special privileges because, my goodness, you know that last pagan Roman emperor Diocletian, well, you know, he just mistreated you people awful. And and buddy, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to make that up to you. And what verse 14 is letting you know is that a lot of them bought into it. And listen, by the time you get out of the Pergamus church period, you know what the doctrine, the Catholic Church of Rome is teaching? Listen. That you receive Christ by something you eat and something you drink. You know what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7 says that the children of Israel did back there with Balak? It says the people sat down to eat and drink. And in the Pergamos church period, after Constantine married the church to the world and paganism flooded Christianity, this is where the teaching entered into the church that the priest in the midst of the service that came to be called the Mass, that he had the mystical ability to be able to transform the bread and the wine of the communion into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that that's how you actually receive Christ, by eating his literal body in that bread and drinking his literal blood in that cup. The Catholic encyclopedia explains it this way. In the celebration of the Holy Mass, the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. It is called transubstantiation. In other words, the substance is transformed. Transubstantiation. For the sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of bread and wine do not remain, but the entire substance of bread is changed into the body of Christ, and the entire substance of wine is changed into His blood, the species or outward semblance of bread and wine alone remaining. In other words, you look at it and you see physical bread and you see physical wine, but that's not what it is. It is the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And all you need, now listen, all you need to know about what the Lord thinks about it, he tells you right here. At the end of verse 14, he lets you know that the sacrifice they're eating is idolatry and has caused them to commit spiritual fornication. And it becomes a doctrine. In the pergamus church period. The, a doctrine that our Lord calls the doctrine of Balaam because it became a stumbling block for God's people that caused them to eat things in the midst of idolatrous worship that God saw as spiritual fornication. That's why he says in verse 16, Repent. Repent from what? From holding the doctrine that was causing them to commit idolatry and fornication. Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. And notice in verse 15 that there's another doctrine that the church in the Pergamus period began to embrace. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans which God says that he hates. We've talked about it before back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6 in the Ephesus church period. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the establishment of a priest class over the common man. We've seen that the word Nicolaitans is a transliteration of two Greek words. Niko meaning conquer. Laos or laity, which means the common people, or the, the laity. And notice, back in the Ephesus church period, look at verse 6 of chapter 2, it was a deed. They, they saw themselves... Uh, uh, there, there was a man in in the church back there in Ephesus who had begun to usurp the, the the a place over the common man. There were a group of people who began to see themselves, as First Peter talked about in chapter 5, and verse 3, ministers who saw themselves as lords over God's heritage. But notice back in verse 6, not only did God hate it, so did the church. And they stood against it. They hated it. But by the time you get to the Pergamos period, what had been a sporadic act back there had settled down into the church as an established and accepted doctrine. Do you see that? You see, that's why you don't give the devil any latitude whatsoever when it comes to a doctrinal issue. Because what you do as a sporadic act now is going to become a doctrine in just a little while. And God says at the end of verse 15, I'm just telling you, God says, I hate that teaching. I I hate when somebody puts himself in a position over the common man. Because Mark chapter 12 and verse 37 says, the common people, when Jesus Christ was on this planet, the common people heard him gladly. But the priest class, they didn't. They had a hard time with Him. So, you see what the letter in the church in Pergamus is defining for us? The church marries the world. The union gives birth to a counterfeit church. The church usurps the authority from Christ and the Bible and begins to teach doctrines that don't have anything to do with Christianity, but are doctrines that are propagated by Satan to, to cause God to bring judgment upon them. And anyone who is a true believer that had been duped in participating in them because God or Satan knew that if God's people would be involved in that, he knew that God would look at that as fornication and idolatry. So, in verse 16, after giving the commission of this letter in verse 12, and after stating his character to the church in verse 12, and his commendation in verse 13, his condemnation in verses 14 and 15, he gives his correction in verse 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And you see, that sounds real harsh, but you see, if you really look at what's going on there, it's a very gracious thing that our word is saying in verse 16. You know what he's saying? I'm giving you, I'm giving you the chance to repent before the judgment against them falls. And do you realize, folks? Listen, even after they had been duped, even after they had become idolatrous and had committed spiritual fornication against Christ, he still would have forgiven them if they only would have repented. And do you, do, you, do you realize that if they would have heeded His counsel in verse 16 and repented, do you understand what the implications of that would have been? The whole dark ages could have been avoided with all of its evil and bloodshed and death. All of that could have been avoided. Then in the last part of verse 17, our Lord issues His call. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. Unto the churches. You know what He's saying? Hey, I know that there's another voice that is speaking in your midst. And our Lord says... But is there anybody that is listening to the Spirit's voice? Anybody that's listening to what I'm trying to say in the midst of the churches? And then just let me hit the challenge. In verse 17, he says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and a stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And and I'll be honest with you, I don't claim to know everything about this verse. The first part's a little easier than the second. He says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and he's obviously catch this now he's obviously contrasting what the people were eating in verse 14 that had been sacrificed to idols with something that he would give them to eat that he calls the hidden manna And you know what if you go back in Exodus chapter 16 verses 32 to 34, God told the children of Israel to take some of the manna that God used to sustain them in the wilderness and they took they were to take that thing and put it in a pot and then it was to be placed. In the Ark of the Covenant, to be preserved for the generations. You know what it was? It was the hidden manna. And if you go to John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51, Jesus said that the manna really was just a picture of who? Of him. Uh, of him. That he was the real bread that brought about eternal life. And so obviously, an overcomer in this verse that he's talking about in verse 17, it's not somebody that eats something. That a church, says, represents Christ. But it is someone who comes to Christ Himself and to Him alone and partakes of spiritual bread for their soul by acknowledging the fact that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh and that His blood that was shed upon the cross is the only means of salvation that is not dispensed by any church or by any other means than by humbling yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is the dispenser of salvation. If you compare Revelation 2.17, Exodus 16, and John 6, that interpretation seems to be what the hidden manna is all about. Now the white stone, with the new name written on it, that's a little more difficult to determine because you're not able to cross this one, cross-reference this one just as easily. Probably the best explanation I know is that in ancient times, when somebody was being tried for a crime, A black stone meant a verdict of guilty. A white stone meant a verdict of not guilty or the fact that he had been acquitted of the crime. And you see, I do know this. When we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, when when He saved us, we came to Him alone for salvation apart from any church or baptism or any other human work. That's spiritually what happened to us, right? We were acquitted of all of our crimes, all of our sin against Him. And if the white stone is Christ and we know that we are now in Christ and we have a new name in Christ in Revelation 3.17, our Lord promises overcomers, I will write upon Him my new name. And again, I'm not sure I've got that all figured out. In fact, I'm quite sure that I don't. Like Sam Jones used to say, if I understood everything in the Bible, I know somebody wrote it didn't have any more sense than I did. But I do know this. I do know that when you trust Jesus Christ, listen, when you trust Jesus Christ alone to save you, and God places you spiritually in Christ, and you're forgiven of all your sins, I do know this. I do know that you take on His name, don't you? You become a Christian. A Christ,ian A little Christ, as it were. In the end of verse 17, when you receive it, you know it, don't you? Because His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And I can guarantee you this, No church can ever cause you to know that. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I'm done. (laughs) And if you're here as a guest, I do apologize to you for the length today. I don't apologize to you for the content. I want you to understand, we love Catholics. We do. I don't know that there's anything that I would not do for a Roman Catholic. priest. Pope, any of them, I hate the Roman Catholic Church. And that may sound harsh to you, but it is a system that has damned billions of people to hell thinking they were on their way to heaven. And our infallible guide lets us know it is the system that Satan is using. It's the same system from the Tower of Babel. And maybe some of you are in that system. I, I appeal to you today to come to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, apart from infant baptism, apart from catechism, apart from any church, be it this one or any other church, come to the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledging that He alone died on the cross for your sins and He's the only one that can redeem you. You don't even have to be a part of that system. If you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, this is an authoritative book. It's a sharp sword with two edges. And buddy, I'm just telling you, the God of this universe is holding this scalpel in His hand this morning, just ready and willing, wanting to do spiritual surgery in your life. To take your sin and this morning just cut that out and place a new spirit within you. The spirit of the living God. And that can happen for you today. What's getting ready to happen in this service is we're getting ready to be dismissed and people are going to walk outside of this room But the pastors of this church are going to remain in here. We've got a lot of pastors on vacation. Normally I'm out in the foyer shaking hands. Today, Pastor Bob is going to be over on this side and I'm going to be right over here. And we're here because we would love the opportunity of sitting down with you and showing you today how you can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we appeal to you that if the God of this universe is speaking to your heart today, man, don't leave. Don't leave and go your merry way. The Bible says today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Oh, don't harden your heart and walk out of here like this never happened. If the God of the universe is speaking to you today, would you please remain and do business with Him as He calls. Let's stand together.